The church was God's idea. It was God's idea. And, and not everybody understands that it's important to realize that the church was Jesus' idea. He's the one that came up with it first. And sometimes people say something like, you know, they, they love God but not the church. How many have ever heard that? Right? Love God but not the church. And, and I get that. There are reasons for that. That's, there's usually a story behind a statement like that. And I get where they're coming from. But some people go even further and they say that the church wasn't God's idea at all that it was this human idea, and that it's, um, it's, it's Jesus never intended that to happen, but it's this it's institutionalization of, of a open faith that Jesus had given us. Some people think that that's the case, and, and that that was never Jesus' plan to pull the church together. And I don't believe that's true. The church was Jesus' idea. It was his, he's the one that mentioned it first. And, and let's be honest, has the church in general gone horribly wrong sometimes in history? Yeah. Does it have flaws? Mm-hmm. Does it look different in different cultures in different places all around the world? It totally does. And does it, has it changed in its form or how it looks through time over the last 2,000 years? Yeah, and it's probably going to evolve again. But, but God's church matters. The church of Jesus Christ was part of God's plan. It was his idea. Jesus had this assumption and he had this expectation that our faith and our relationship with him was not going to be just an individual thing. It's not just me and God or you individually and God. Jesus had this assumption that, that there would be ongoing community and that there would be ongoing relationship, that there would be an identifiable community that is the community of God called the church. And, and this togetherness of, among people who are all part of the kingdom of heaven, this togetherness among people who are followers of Jesus, walking it out together. Jesus expected that. It was Jesus' idea in the first place. And it, it came up one day when he was talking with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. See, it's Jesus' idea. And I love that phrase, I will build my church. Say it with me, I will build my church. It's so confident the way Jesus says it. It's so assured and it's so powerful. And I love that he says that. And, and because it, it kind of means it's not actually dependent on me, Whew. Right? It's not dependent on you. If any of you felt that the building of the entire church rested on you, it doesn't. And you can be, you can be relieved about that. God is the one who builds his church. God is the reason that the church has survived all this time. And God is the one who's going to keep his church going. Jesus said, I will build my church. And that is a powerful, strong statement. But I do wonder what the disciples thought when they first heard it. You know, when, when Simon Peter first was talking to Jesus, what he thought, because here they are, and they're in this conversation, and, and uh, Jesus is talking with Peter, and he said, you know, Peter, who do you think that I am? 
And Peter goes, you know, Jesus, I've really thought about this. And I, I really, I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the Son of God. And that's huge. Peter knows that it's huge. It's, it's been part of his um, Jewish upbringing, his faith. They've been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. And he knows that that's who they've been waiting for. And to say, Jesus, I think you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. He understands that that has huge implications. He has a, an idea of what that means. And it's just massive. He knows what it is that he's just said. But then P- Jesus says, you're Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And, and you can just imagine, Peter, this is where I have a little bit of fun sometimes. I hope that's allowed. He said, I can imagine Peter going, you know, wow, Jesus. I'm, I'm just so humbled by that. I'm so honored. I mean, I didn't know that this is what we, you would have to say. And, and, you know, for you to notice that my name means rock. And usually when people reference that, they're kind of calling me a blockhead usually is what that's about. But, but you seem to think that there's a positive thing. And I'm just blown away, Jesus, that you would build your church. I mean, wow. What's a church? Peter doesn't have any frame of reference for a church. Hasn't been talked about before. I mean, maybe he understands that there's some similarity with, with him going to temple and, and with his Jewish faith, and that's part of it. But up until now, Jesus has just been talking about a kingdom of heaven, and he kind of thinks he knows what a kingdom is supposed to look like. But a church, I mean, what's a church? What's it supposed to look like? How's it supposed to feel? And, and how is it supposed to work exactly? And so then the next few chapters, which we're going to pull from today, they have moments in them where Jesus is saying to his disciples, I know you don't know, but I'm going to tell you. And I give you some principles, and I give you some guidelines for how, how my church works, how the community of Jesus Christ is supposed to work, how, how the world that Jesus sees, how that's supposed to work. And he gives some guidelines for all of that. And, so, and that's what we're going to look at today. And so the first thing, the first guideline, the principle that I see Jesus bringing out is the church is a community. It's a community. It's not just a gathering of individual people. I know you're all sitting in individual chairs because that's what's most comfortable in a crowd. But the church is not just a gathering of individual people that happen to come out on Sunday morning. The church is the whole. The church is, it's the community, and it's the community of relationships. My church, our church back home in Hamilton, is a community. There's churches all over the world that are a community of relationships, and then those churches are in relationship with each other, and together, all around the world, we form the Church of Jesus Christ, which is amazing. It's a community relational thing. It's about people sharing life together and people following Jesus together. Can I just say to you, the church is not a separate organization for serving people. And you go, what? The people who come to church, who are part of the people are not clients of the church. People are not customers of the church, of this separate entity called the church. The pastor is not the church. The leadership is not the church. We are the church. All of us together. Say that with me. We are the church. We are the church. All of us together. It is us. It doesn't exist without us. We're in this together. We're walking out our faith. We're being the church of Jesus Christ. It's community. 
And it's kind of a different kind of community than happens in, you know, the rest of the world. It's a little bit countercultural. Kind of goes against the grain a little bit sometimes, has different principles than other communities. Like, for example, um, in, in the community of the church, who's got the power? Who's got the influence? You know, who's, the disciples asked that question. They were kind of going, so, uh, Jesus, you know, about this church that you're talking about. Um, who, who, who's the greatest? Which is just a polite way of saying who's got the power, right? Who's got the influence? Every community has sort of jockeying for position and climbing a ladder and figuring things out. Some are more respected. Who gets to, who gets to have the influence? And so that's always a question in any long-term community of people. Who's got the power and how do I get some? And that's what they asked. And, and Jesus anticipated that. Matthew 18, he, it says Jesus called a child over, and he had the child stand near him, and then he said, but if you are as humble as this child, you're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And, and later, the disciples, you know, they gather around because they want some clarification around that because obviously he didn't mean that. That can't be what he, what he meant, that that would be the greatest. And they go, okay, Jesus, yeah, we, we get it, right? Be like a child, super humble, dependent on God, all of that stuff. We get that, but, but really, now the crowd's not here. Really, who gets the throne beside yours? Who, how do I get to be your right-hand dude, Jesus? How do I get to be the person that has all kinds of influence and makes all kinds of decisions? Like, really, who's got the power in this community that you're setting up? And, and it says in Matthew 20, you've got to picture it around this campfire, Jesus chatting with his disciples, just, just Jesus and them. And it says, so Jesus got them together to settle things down. And he said, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around. How quickly a little power goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Say that with me. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That's what the Son of Man has done. He's come to serve, not be served, and then to give away his life. Well, right. Okay, sure, Jesus, we get that. We understand it. Got to serve a little bit. Got to help some other people out, do those. We've done that for a bit. Well, once we've paid our dues and once we've served, then, and Jesus goes, no. Okay, but what if we're the ones that have been here the longest and some of the newbies come along, you know, and they don't know as much. And so surely the ones who've been here the last, mm-mm. Well, but Jesus, no. But Jesus, that's not fair. You know, that's not how it works. That's not how communities in the world work. And Jesus goes, I know. Isn't that great? And he says in Matthew 20, verse 16, it's the great reversal. Many of the first ending up last and the last first. The church is a different kind of community. And you got to let that sink in. It's a mutually submissive, serving one another community. That's what the church is. That's what it's supposed to look like as we live in relationship together and as we live out our faith. And then Jesus had other stuff too that he talked about with his disciples. He had this great story about a shepherd who had 100 sheep and, and 99 of them. One gets lost, but 99 are, they're still good and they're solid. And really, that's, that's not bad, actually. If you were talking about any other kind of community or some club or organization or something that's part of the way the regular world works, we'd go, that's pretty good, right? 99? Lost one? What are you going to do? And, and it's pretty good success rate. But Jesus didn't think that. He said in Matthew 18, let me ask you this. 
What would you do if you had a hundred sheep and one of them wandered off? Wouldn't you leave the 99 on the hillside and go look for the one that had wandered away? I'm sure that finding it would make you happier than having the 99 that never wandered off. That's how it is with your Father in heaven. He doesn't want any of these little ones to be lost. None of them. In Jesus' community, in the church, the one matters. The one matters. The one who's in the fringe. The one who's in the margin. The one who drifts in and out. The one who doesn't fit with the other 99. The one, the one who, who is looking to belong and hasn't belonged yet. That one matters in the church. Matters as much as the 99 people who are good and solid and stable. Jesus said, then leave those ones in safe space and go get the one. Because the one matters in the community that is the church. Every single person in the community of the church matters. We value each other. We serve each other. We love each other. We show kindness to each other because the church is a community. Here's the second thing I want to say. Ready? Church is messy. It's messy. It's, it's, it's not here. The, not this one. <laughs> other ones. Right? Just other ones are messy, that, you know, sometimes people rub each other the wrong way or they step on each other's toes or we offend each other a little bit and, and we can argue over almost anything sometimes in the church. We argue over what version of scripture to use or what song to sing or whether it's okay for my husband to have gel in his hair so it stands defies the law of gravity. You know, we can argue about almost anything, right? And, and, and Jesus knew that. And he totally anticipated that the church is messy. He said in Matthew 18, listen, if one of my followers sins against you or offends you, some versions say, go and point out what was wrong. But do it in private, just between the two of you. If that person listens, you've won back a follower. If that one refuses to listen, take along one or two others. The scriptures teach that every complaint must be proven true by two or more witnesses. And if the follower refuses to listen to them, then report the matter to the whole church. And then it says, a few verses later, Peter comes up to Jesus, and I picture him as kind of, you know, sidling up on the side and elbowing him and talking out of the side of his mouth. Peter came up to the Lord and asked, yeah, but how many times exactly should I forgive someone who does something wrong to me? Don't you want to know why Peter had so many people doing things wrong to him? Anyway. How many times should I forgive someone who does something wrong to me? Is seven times enough, Jesus? And Jesus answered, no, not just seven times. It's 77 times or 70, 70 times seven, whatever your translation of Scripture says. I love that Jesus anticipated that it would be messy sometimes and that there might even be conflict and disagreement sometimes. He kind of assumed it, and the fact that he assumed it takes a lot of pressure off. Um, because there's people sometimes that think that the goal of the church is to never have any disagreement at all. Never. Everything's perfect all the time. Everything's fine all the time. And I'm not sure that that's realistic. I'm not sure that's healthy. Um, you know, because lots of times if you're in a group of people or a community of people and there's never any disagreement or even differing opinions at all, then it either means people are not engaged, they just don't care, or worse, it might mean there's some sort of controlling or abusive thing going on in a relationship where you're not allowed to disagree. 
That's not healthy. That's not realistic. I heard somebody say once that in a marriage, if two people agree on everything all the time, one of them's not necessary. And, right? I didn't make it up. Somebody else said it. But I want to assure you that in Jeff's and my marriage, we're both necessary. Okay? It, very necessary. But people are different. We come from different spaces. We have different personalities. We have different backgrounds, different stories that have contributed to who we are. And conflict is going to happen sometimes. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to annoy each other sometimes. And, um, and we might disagree. And the key becomes then, what do we do with it? How do we handle it when that happens? How do we handle conflict? And the thing is, in our world, that's, you know, the regular world that we live in, there's a bunch of different ways that you can respond to conflict, but two of them are pretty common. One of them is you fight to win. How many have seen that? You fight to win, and you, you do whatever you need to do in order for that to happen. So you manipulate if you have to. You take low blows if you have to. You uh, take shots at people. You get other people on board with you so you can bully somebody else into their corner. And you certainly don't let it go because that's losing. And you win by being right and proving to the other person that they're wrong. You fight, right? And can I just tell you, that is really effective at getting ahead. It's terrible for relationships. And then sometimes people do something else. They don't fight so much when conflict happens. They just run away. And they turtle. And they hide. And they pull back. And they disengage with whatever's happening. And they just go, well, it doesn't matter anyway. Nobody cares what I have to say. Oh, it's just water under the bridge. It's fine. Everything's fine. But it's not fine. There's still hurt inside. There's still um, unresolved pain inside. And that method is really effective at avoiding conflict and always having the, the face, you know, the, the facade of peacefulness. But it's terrible for relationships. It's awful. And in the community of Jesus Christ in the church, the relationships actually matter. And so Jesus acknowledges that conflict happens in community, and then he gives us these guidelines and these principles of how to handle it. And we just read some of it right there. Like, like first of all, consider how important it really is. You know, uh, not here, in other churches, people sometimes say, well, Scripture says, my brother offends me or sins against me, i got to tell him. So I did. Oh, I told him. That's what the Bible says, Right? And I get a little bit cautious about that because sometimes um, the thing is that's the beginning of a whole number of steps of a process that ends with taking this disagreement to the whole church, which leads me to say, is it going to be important enough that this needs to come to the whole church? And if it's not, are you sure you got to do the first step? How important is it? Think about how important something is. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says that if, you're, if, you, um, if you bring a sacrifice and remember that your brother has something against you because you actually offended them or you did something wrong, then, then you should go fix that before coming to God. We don't quote that verse as much. We're, we're a little quicker sometimes to let somebody else know how they've sinned or let them know how they've offended us rather than jumping on the I'm sorry and I messed up bandwagon. And, and so you got to consider how important it really is. And, and, and then the second thing that Jesus says kind of in that scripture is, listen, work it out. If conflict happens, just work it out with the goal of unity and the goal of healing and the goal of restoration. If there's something that needs to be talked out, just talk it out. Do the hard work of having the conversation, of facing it, of bring a third party if that helps along. Don't run away. 
don't, don't run away from the whole thing, but don't, don't fight to win either. Fight to win them back. Fight to win each other back. The goal is restoration and healing and all of us together getting better at walking out our faith and at following Jesus. And there is nothing stronger than a relationship in which people have been through disagreement, done the hard work of talking it out and working it through and getting to the other side in unity. There's nothing stronger than that. It's powerful. And then the bottom line is, you know, Jesus said, always forgive. Always forgive. Always forgive. Always. Always. Always forgive. Whether you can fix it or not, whether you're right or not, whether it's fair or not, always forgive because God has forgiven us of far, far more. And, and it's not the same. I know it's not the same as just trusting somebody. It's not the same as nothing happens. Sometimes you've got to rebuild relationship and you've got to work all that through. But holding on to unforgiveness is not an option. It will destroy your soul. It will destroy the church holding unforgiveness. Always, always, always forgive. You know, I think it's weird sometimes that people think that there would never be conflict in the church, like as if we're all some sort of cookie cutter, same shapes, automatons walking around with weird kind of cult-like smiles on our faces. Everything's the same all the time. Relationships are difficult. Living in community sometimes can be difficult. But can I just tell you something? The world doesn't need to see a group of people who all look the same. They don't need to see a community or a group of people. They don't need to see the church of God who who never, ever disagree and never have any messiness. They need to see that followers of Jesus can give grace to each other. They need to see that followers of Jesus can honor each other and can serve each other and can be kind to each other even when they disagree with each other or annoy each other. The, the church, they need to see that we can work through some of the more difficult moments with, with honesty and with compassion and with humility and with forgiveness and that we can come out stronger on the other side because we did the hard work of, of working it through. The, the church is messy, and that's not a bad thing because here's the thing. Ready? The world needs to see that the church is messy because they need to see that there's room for them too in their messiness. They need to see that there is space for them here too even though they're not perfect like us. That was a joke. I had to say that in the first service too. I thought that was a really obvious joke, but anyway... The world needs to see that the church is messy sometimes and that it has room for their messiness because here's the thing and here's the last point. The church is the way that the world sees Jesus. The world sees, there's a reason scripture calls us the body of Christ. I mean, let that phrase sink in. Some of us have heard it so many times. We, the body of Christ, that's who we are. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. People do not meet Jesus, you know, because he's standing right there in a human body and walking around the world like he did 2,000 years ago for just a few years. That's not how they see Jesus. They see us. Us. And that's how they see Jesus. 
And somebody's going to say to me, well, Patty, that's not actually true. I heard a story. And I, I know somebody, and it happens all over the place, where people have no connection with the church at all. And, and Jesus appears to them, and there's this huge vision, and it's amazing, and it's miraculous. And they, they come to Christ, and they meet God without the church. I know. I know. Two weeks ago, I had a conversation with a pastor back home, and I, I was part of his credential interview. And he was telling us his story, and he's Ethiopian, and he was raised Muslim. And he, there's a whole story, got out of Ethiopia, was in Sudan. It's an amazing story. And in Sudan, in the middle of the night, while he was out on the street during curfew, so nobody else was out and he wasn't supposed to be either, this audible voice spoke to him. And, and he knew it was God, it was Jesus. And he saw this, you know, this deliverance happen to him and knew that something had been changed. And it, it just deeply changed his life miraculously with nobody else around. And you know what he did the next day? He went to a church, and he found a church, and he said, can somebody tell me about Jesus? The world meets Jesus through the church. People see Jesus. They connect with Jesus. They meet Jesus through the church because that was God's plan. And the thing that amazes me so much, I, I, I don't know if you've ever read it, but the last prayer of Jesus before he went to the cross, which is just tremendous. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows this is going to be his last prayer. And it's just so powerful. It's so huge. And it shows what was on his heart. It's just the cry of his heart coming out as he's talking to his Father in heaven. And this is what his prayer was. And you've got to imagine him praying this to his Father in heaven. John 17, verse 20. Jesus said, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. You understand he's talking about you and me? He prayed for us. And he said, I pray that they will all be one, Father, just as you and I are one. As you're in me, Father, and I'm in you. And may they be in us, here it is, so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so that, we may be, so that they may be one as we are one. I'm in them and you're in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And let me just point out that that prayer that Jesus prayed was not for each one in the individual seats. It was for them it was for everybody together. It was for the community of the church because we, all of us together, are how the world meets Jesus. We are the church together. All of us. All of us here, people in other church communities, our church back home in Hamilton, too, called Crossfire, which, which by the way, is praying for you today. He's praying for Evangel today in their service, and they're praying for Jeff, and they're praying for me. I mean, you guys found out last week who it was that was coming today. So did they. It's a tough Sunday back home in Hamilton last Sunday. And this weekend, they're pausing in their service, and they are specifically taking time to pray for Montreal and to pray for Evangel and to pray for us because they understand that the church of Jesus Christ is all over the world. And they want to see God's best, just like you do and just like I do. God's best for all of us and for God to bring his very best plan today. Because we are all the church. Can we pray? So God, 
you know, it's amazing that you would trust us with this. It's amazing that you would look down at our messiness and you would say, they're going to represent me. That's pretty humbling. And it's quite a responsibility. So God, we just close today by saying, this was your idea. Thank you for it. Thank you that you would trust us with this. Thank you that you would choose to show yourself to the world through this. We're asking, God, that in Jesus' name, you would increase your presence among us. You would help us to, to do whatever work needs to be done, to, to be an authentic community, even working through our messiness and be able to grow together so that people see Jesus when they look at us. That's our prayer, God, that you would help us to walk out your plan Walk together as followers of Jesus so that when people look at us, they see you. Help us to do that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.